This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. We've been having some weird weather in these parts. It was 65 degrees here the other day. Not something we usually experience in late February or early March. Anyway, I'm not complaining. It was great to get outside and enjoy the warm weather. However, now I'm even more antsy to get out into my garden and start planting. Unfortunately, there are more snowstorm forecasts looming in the future, so I will just have to wait. I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we'll be talking with Brett Thielen, the science director at the Harris Center for Conservation Education in New Hampshire. We'll be talking with her about how to help salamanders and other amphibians safely cross the road during what scientists call big nights. Those are the spring evenings when there is a steady drizzling rain and temperatures reach between 40 to 45 degrees. You can find hundreds and even thousands of amphibians in the roads on these nights. Brett will talk about her salamander brigades and how they are saving salamanders from being run over by cars. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Brett Thielen, the Science Director at the Harris Center for Conservation Education in Hancock, New Hampshire. For years, Brett has been coordinating efforts to help salamanders and other amphibians trying to cross the roads at night during mating season. These events, called big nights by scientists, can result in thousands of amphibians attempting to cross the roads on the same evening. Her salamander brigades, which are comprised of volunteers willing to help amphibians get safely across the roads, is resulting in the protection and conservation of salamanders and other amphibians at multiple critical sites in New Hampshire. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you tell our listeners all about the Harris Center and the work that you do there? Yeah, so I'm the science director at the Harris Center for Conservation Education. We're based in Hancock, New Hampshire, and we work really all throughout the Monadnock region of southwest New Hampshire. And the Harris Center is a land trust, so we protect land from development, and we're also a conservation education center, so we do environmental education for people of all ages, and we also coordinate conservation research projects, including community science projects that help engage volunteers in collecting data about the natural world. And my role there as our science director is I oversee a lot of these community science projects as well as research that happens on our protected lands. And we like to say that we help people fall in love with the natural world through land protection, conservation research, and education of all ages. So we've protected, I think, just over 24,000 acres of land from development 
A lot of that is open for hiking and other recreation. We coordinate conservation research on that land and throughout the region through a variety of community science projects. That's my role with the Harris Center. And then really at the heart of everything we do is education for all ages, from babies and backpacks to residents of retirement communities and all points in between. And that's where our, our community science projects also really shine is helping people learn about the natural world and connect to it. And I'm here today because one of the projects I've worked on for 15 years with the Harris Center is our Salamander Crossing Brigade Community Science Project. So tell us how you got involved in conservation work. You know, I was not the person who always knew what I wanted to do with my life. In fact, much of my growing up, I had no idea, and I had a lot of interests. And I always enjoyed being outside, but I never really took a careful look at it until I was in my 20s, and I volunteered with an AmeriCorps project on Cape Cod that was focused on conservation and environmental education. And we did all kinds of projects, everything from helping to grow clams to trail maintenance to one particular project that really captured my imagination, which was horseshoe crab surveys and horseshoe crab tagging. And this was my first experience of citizen science where volunteers who may or may not have had any scientific background were trained to help with wildlife research. And so I was a volunteer with very little scientific background at that point, but I just loved learning about horseshoe crabs and going out in the middle of the night to survey them when they were spawning at the full moon. And that really got me thinking about wildlife and conservation and also the idea of citizen science or community science where people connect to the natural world by helping to collect scientific information. And that kind of set me on my path towards salamanders because I went back to school. I went to graduate school at Antioch University, New England, and studied conservation biology. And when I was there, I connected with someone who was really interested in doing citizen science in the Monadnock region. And he had just started this project called the Salamander Crossing Brigades. And he brought me on to help with that. And then a year or two later, kind of handed over the reins to me. And so now I've been shepherding salamanders ever since. So I think this will be my 16th season. I think that is so exciting. Now, since today's show is about helping salamanders, could you explain what exactly is a salamander? So the word amphibian comes from ampha, meaning double or both, and bio, meaning life. So amphibians live a double life, both on land and in water, depending on the different phases of their life cycle. So typically they're aquatic as larvae, and terrestrial as adults. So salamanders in particular among the amphibians are fairly long-lived. Many of them live more than a decade. Some species can live 20 years or more, which is pretty remarkable. Every species is a little different, but the salamanders that live in New Hampshire tend to either be creatures of the forest floor living in the woods or underground or creatures of wooded streams. The ones who live in the forest are under leaf litter, under logs, under stones, in tunnels underground, and they really only come above ground on rainy nights, either for breeding migrations in the spring or sometimes to forage. And amphibians are really known for their complex life cycle. So they, they start off as eggs, usually in an aquatic environment like a vernal pool or a stream or a lake. And they hatch into aquatic larvae that have gills and don't have legs in the beginning. And then they have to grow 
lungs for some species and legs. And they undergo a truly incredible metamorphosis where their gastrointestinal systems change, their respiratory systems change as they transition into adult salamanders. So that can happen over the course of summer or a couple of years, depending on the species. But it's a really complex life cycle. Every species is a little different. The species that I pay closest attention to are our woodland salamanders. And they are living underground or just under the leaf litter, under logs. They're eating earthworms, slugs, beetles, other insects, and mostly living their lives away from our eye because they're fossorial or species that live underground. So that's what makes spring nights really exciting is because this is one of the few times a year when they emerge from underground and are active above ground. How many types of salamanders are there? That's a great question, and I actually had to look it up for worldwide because I know a lot about salamanders in New Hampshire, and I know a lot less about salamanders throughout the world. But there are more than 750 species of salamanders and newts in the world. But here in New Hampshire, we really only have 12, and a couple of them are quite rare and not very common. What role do they play in the ecosystem? So amphibians in general, and including salamanders, play a really important ecological role. And one way of kind of measuring this that I always like to share with people is a concept called biomass. And you may have heard about that in relation to energy, but in this context, it's a way of comparing groups of species and looking at their ecological significance. And the way that it's calculated in its most simplistic form is to take the mass of one individual of a species and add it to the mass of all the other individuals of that species in a given place and time. So for instance, if I wanted to calculate the biomass of human beings in the Harris Center building, I would take my weight or mass and I would add it to that of each of my colleagues and I'd get a number. And then maybe I wanted to compare that to the biomass of mice or ants in the Harris Center building. And when I added up those numbers, I might get a figure that surprised me because ants and mice are much smaller than humans, but they also tend to be much more numerous. And so that's a simple way of looking at biomass, but this is what biologists have done with our forested systems. And they've looked at the biomass of salamanders and compared it to the biomass of other species. And one study found looking just at the redback salamander, which is our most common woodland salamander in New Hampshire, that the biomass of that one species was more than twice that of all the bird species combined during peak bird breeding season. So What that means is that there's an incredible amount of energy moving through our forests in the bodies of salamanders. And that manifests most clearly in the food web, where they are really important prey for all sorts of creatures, from foxes to turkeys to hawks to snakes to turtles, coyotes, you name it, they probably eat salamanders. And in turn, they're really important predators of insects and invertebrates particularly in the soil ecosystem. So they're really right there in the middle of our forest food web. And if we lost our amphibians, a lot of other balances could be picked as well. Do we have any threatened or endangered salamanders in New Hampshire? We do have some species in New Hampshire that are considered threatened or endangered in our state. The marbled salamander, which I've actually never seen in the wild, is because it really only occurs in a few places in southern New Hampshire is considered endangered in the state. 
We also have the Jefferson and blue spotted salamanders, which frequently hybridize, which are considered species in greatest need of conservation. So not technically threatened or endangered, but are becoming rarer. But many of our species, thankfully, are still quite common. What threats or dangers do salamanders face? Yeah, salamanders face a lot of threats for almost all wildlife. One of the chief threats is habitat loss or degradation. So just losing the places. You, know, you can't have wildlife without wildlife habitat. And so when we lose habitat to development, that's for sure impacts amphibians. There are definitely concerns about disease that may, in particular, there are certain salamander diseases that haven't reached New Hampshire yet, but may and may be exacerbated by climate change. There are other concerns about climate change related to moisture and temperature regimes. And also some of our salamander species breed in a specialized habitat called a vernal pool, which is a depression in the forest floor that fills with melting snow and spring rain and typically dries up by late summer or early fall and holds water just long enough for the salamanders and frogs who breed there for their young to hatch from eggs and go through their larval phase and metamorphose and get ready for life on land. But if those vernal pools dry up too early, for instance, if we have a really warm or dry spring and summer, then you could have kind of a year where there's very little breeding success. And the more summers we have like that, the more concern there is about the ability of these salamanders to successfully reproduce. Amphibians and reptiles both also are very vulnerable to poaching for the pet trade. And so there's some concerns about that. And one of the threats that I spend a lot of time thinking about is roadkill and road mortality, as scientists call it. Because whenever these animals have to cross roads, they pose a grave threat to them. And one other threat I guess I should also mention, all amphibians are quite sensitive to toxins and pollutants. They have porous skin, and some amphibians actually breathe through their skin. And so they're very sensitive to toxins in the environment. And that's something that doesn't seem to affect New Hampshire populations too much just yet, but certainly is something to keep an eye on. Besides habitat protection, the threat that I spend the most time thinking about is road mortality and roadkill. It's something that people don't often associate with amphibians. We tend to think, when we think of roadkill, we tend to think of larger animals whose bodies stay on the road for longer periods of time and who maybe are more visible, so deer or squirrels or raccoons, animals that tend to get hit one at a time and whose carcasses are persistent. And amphibians, it's a really different scenario in that on their breeding nights, they might be on the road, there might be thousands of them, on the road at the same time, but they're very small and they're soft bodied and they can be hard to see, especially because they're breeding the nights that they do their breeding migrations is typically raining. And so we don't see them in the way that we might see a deer on the side of the road. And by morning, many of the carcasses have been scavenged by crows or just crushed beyond recognition. So unless you're out there on those nights, it's hard to have a sense for the magnitude of the issue, but more and more research is, is happening that is documenting roadkill as a really serious concern for amphibians. And, and that's part of what my work is and what our Salamander Crossing Brigade program is, is to help reduce some of this roadkill on these migration nights. So that's the program I wanted to talk to you about, the Salamander Brigade work that you organize every year. Could you talk about Big Night and what it means? Yeah, I'd love to. Big Night is 
in my opinion, one of the most magical experiences of the year, one of the most amazing uh, natural phenomenon. And it happens on the first warm, rainy nights of spring after the ground has thawed. And on these nights, thousands and thousands and thousands of salamanders and frogs clamber up from the underground burrows where they've spent the winter and they move across the landscape to vernal pools and other wetlands to start their courtship and process of laying eggs. And so sometimes this happens just a few nights a year, these big nights. Occasionally we might have some medium night, we call medium nights or small nights. It's entirely weather dependent phenomenon. So it happens after the ground has thawed when nighttime temperatures are 40 degrees or above and when there's wet weather at night. And some element of all of those three things needs to be present. This is New England and spring weather is incredibly fickle. And so there's all kinds of variations on those things. Temperatures might be right on the cusp of bug friendly. So they might, they might start off with a migration in the early part of the night and it might peter out when temperatures drop into the 30s or it might start raining and then stop raining. Or it might be some areas that'll occur at different times because of lingering snowpack or elevation changes or temperature changes. So it's an incredible phenomenon that all of these animals are on the move at the same time. And it's also a challenging one sometimes to predict. You really have to be watching the weather very carefully. The other thing I guess it's important to mention about Big Night is that in the early spring, these are breeding migrations. They're, they're migrating to typically vernal pools, sometimes other wetlands to breed. And they have what's known as site fidelity, which means really strong attachment to a specific place. In this case, they're breeding pools. So they're returning to the same places year after year. In many cases, it's the very wetland where they themselves hatched from an egg. And spotted salamanders, which are one of the primary species involved in this migration, they can live more than 20 years. So this is a really long-term prospect, this returning year after year to these pools to breed. And so there are patterns that emerge on the landscape where these migrations are taking place. And in our modern landscape, this can mean crossing roads, which is quite perilous for, for these species. I will say I've seen migrations happen anywhere from mid-March through early May in the Monadnock region of southwest New Hampshire. So the further south you go, the earlier they start. In Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, they can start in February. In the White Mountains and further north, they may linger well into May. Us, late March and April tend to be kind of prime time. And the perfect, classically perfect big night, you'd have a few days at least of a good thaw. So you'd have almost no snow left on the ground. The first few inches of the soil would be thawed out. And then you'd get a good soaking rain that started sometime in the late morning or afternoon and continued through the night. And you'd have nighttime temperatures not dipping any lower than, say, 42, 43 degrees. That's your classic big night condition. And that will spur wood frogs, spring peepers, spotted salamanders, Jefferson salamanders, all of them into action And then later in the season, we tend to get, as it warms, we get other species out and about on these migration nights. And some of them are truly migrating, like gray tree frogs or American toads. They're going to breeding wetlands. And others might just be out there foraging or dispersing, taking advantage of the wet weather to move out and about. So we have about 
10 species of amphibian or so that we see on these, on these rainy spring nights each year. But in the early spring, the really big, big night push is spotted salamanders, wood frogs, spring peepers, and in some places, Jefferson blue spotted salamanders. Can you tell us about the training and how you organize your groups and also what you have the groups do at night? Yeah, so the salamander brigades, our goal is to document and reduce road mortality on these spring migration nights. And so in a nutshell, what we do is we our volunteers find places where there are concentrations of amphibians migrating across roads. And then we help them do that by carrying them across the road by hand or in buckets. The idea being that we're moving these animals faster than they can move themselves. And so they're spending less time on the road and therefore less likely to be hit by cars. We used to call ourselves salamander crossing guards, but I've rebranded because crossing guards stop traffic and we, it's not safe for us to do that. So we don't actually stop traffic like a crossing guard would. We carry these animals across the road and we're also keeping count as we do that of how many animals we're moving by species, how many dead animals we're finding on the road, and then some location information so we can have a sense of where this is happening. And we know that we can't carry every frog across every road. That is not the solution to amphibian road mortality. There are more permanent solutions, things like tunnels, so amphibians can cross under the road instead of over the road. And there's a really incredible amphibian tunnel project that just went in in Moncton, Vermont a few years ago. There's also some communities that are closing roads on migration nights to protect migrating amphibians. You know, just a handful of nights a year, the nights when the greatest number of amphibians are likely to be present on those roads, keeping cars away. And in fact, we are working with the city of Keene to do that at a site in Keene. Neither tunnels nor road closures could happen without information first about where these migrations are taking place, how many animals are involved, what species are involved, whether there's any rare species, you know, because it probably doesn't make sense to close a road if you have 10 amphibians across it on a spring night, but it might make sense to close a road if you have a thousand amphibians moving across it in the course of a few hours. And that's what some of our sites are like. So our goal is to collect information that can be used for conservation and also at the same time to reduce roadkill of the individual amphibians that we encounter on these nights. And so we do have trainings. These days they're on Zoom, so anyone is welcome to join us, although we don't actively coordinate volunteers or accept data from outside of our region. We just don't have the capacity to do that. And it doesn't really make sense because it might be raining and 45 degrees in Keene, New Hampshire, but it might be completely different weather in the White Mountains or on the seacoast or out of state. So it is for us a regional effort, although we are not the only ones doing this. There are organizations throughout the Northeast that are coordinating volunteers just like we are. We have these trainings and we talk about species ID and the ecology of amphibians and how our crossing brigades work. But really the most important part of our training is the safety messages, how to be safe on the road, because it's it's not an inherently safe activity to be out on a dark road, on a foggy, wet night, when driving visibility is reduced and people might not be expecting to see, drivers might not be expecting to see people in the road. So the biggest and most important message at our trainings is the safety message of never going out without a reflective vest and at least one bright light with fresh batteries, not a cell phone flashlight, 
and staying hypervigilant about traffic, that sort of thing. And over the years, we've identified about a dozen crossings in our region that have we've been going to year after year after year and that have a high likelihood of amphibians that have, have high numbers of amphibians. And then we also, one of my other messages around Big Night is to encourage people to drive as little as possible. Because even if you're driving to participate in the salamander brigades, if you're driving 15, 20, 30, 50 miles, how many amphibians have you inadvertently run over on your way to help other amphibians? So over the years, we've encouraged people to find crossings that are as close to home as possible and to go to those places. And so we have dozens of other sites where we might have one family or one group of friends that go out to that particular site because it's close to where they live and collect information and help cross critters there. I can tell you how I got started. It was quite by accident, actually. I rehabilitate injured birds, but I also take in turtles that are hit by cars. I put up signs every year at all the turtle hotspots in the area. And I think because of that, people just assumed I was also watching out for salamanders. So (laughs) I was getting phone calls and emails saying, can you tell us where to go to help the salamanders? So over time, I developed a list of about a dozen people. And these people were willing to go out on these big nights and help the salamanders cross the road. The great thing, too, about the town that we live in is we have a town listserv, which is a computer message service that goes out to the entire town. So on big nights, we ask everyone not to drive unless they absolutely have to. And we also ask people to do the right thing if they come upon hundreds or thousands of frogs and salamanders in the road to not plow through them, but to turn around and find another way home. Right. That's great message. And it's great that you're organizing that way in your community. It's interesting, you know, in the years I've been doing this, when we started this, we were one of three groups I knew that was doing it. And there's such enthusiasm and interest in this that now I know of probably 10 or 12 organizations or more in the Northeast that are organizing this as well as many grassroots efforts like yours. And I think everyone is important and everyone counts and you can help salamanders. You don't have to go out in a 43 degree rain to help salamanders. You can help them simply by not going anywhere. That's important too. The less we're driving on these nights, the better for everyone. And just that awareness of of the weather and how it is impacting what's happening out there in the world. So during salamander season, we keep a five-day salamander forecast on our website. We have an email list. We let people know when we think a migration is likely. But even just that awareness of paying attention to, is it raining and in the 40s or 50s tonight? Because if it is, amphibians are going to be out on roads near water. Throughout the summer, really, even on summer, wet summer nights, it's not a breeding migration, but there's still lots of critters out and about and just shifting our mindset a little bit about what we do on rainy nights and how we travel is, I think, really helpful. And there, in fact, there was a study that came out during the, the first year of the COVID pandemic when there was the kind of lockdown and people weren't traveling. Some folks in Maine who do crossing brigade work found that they had a much lower percentage of roadkill because people weren't driving around as much on these nights. And it was really demonstrating what a difference it can make for us to just stay put. Wait till daylight, you know, wait till the next day to run our errands if we can. And then if you happen to live near a crossing site or have friends that can get together and do this work, it's also really special to be out there and have the camaraderie of, you know, being with the salamander people and seeing these creatures that are really incredible Spotted salamanders 
Cats in particular are really captivate people's imaginations because they're large salamanders. They're eight to 10 inches long. They have bright yellow polka dots. And so most people, when I tell them I work with salamanders, the very first thing that comes to mind for them is a tiny orange salamander called a red eft, which the reason most people know them is because they are one of our only diurnal or day active salamanders. And they are out and about in most any wooded area on any rainy summer day. And so people think about them and they're, they're wonderful too, but they're fairly small size of a, you know, your pinky maybe, or even smaller and spotted salamanders are four or five times that size, really big and beautiful. And most people have never seen one before because these salamanders, the spotted salamanders spend 95% of their lives underground only coming up on these few nights a year to migrate. And so this kind of magical moment of seeing a creature that's lives all around us. You know, right now there is probably a spotted salamander within 20 feet of me. I live kind of in the woods and I'm looking out at the woods right now. And there's probably a spotted salamander deep under the forest floor right now, but I don't see them. And we, we don't have the opportunity to see them except on these nights really when they come above ground. So it feels really magical and to have so many of them out at once, and especially after a long, cold, icy, hard winter, this kind of first big explosion of life in the spring can be really exciting and magical. And so we have volunteers that have been come back year after year. It's a spring tradition for them. And it's really, you know, it's not what I would call comfortable being out there on these nights because it we call them warm nights, but 45 degrees isn't that warm for a human. And so they can be chilly and you're wet. For some people, it's just not their cup of tea and that's fine. But for those of us who do go out, there's something really inspiring and magical about seeing this annual ritual take place while the rest of us are are tucked away, you know, in front of a wood stove somewhere trying to stay warm and dry. I have to say it is so gratifying to help these creatures and to actually see a salamander. It's like seeing an ivory billed woodpecker. You can't believe it. You just stare in awe at this incredible creature And then you also have the honor of picking him up and carrying him across the road. It is truly a magical experience. But salamanders have a real, there's just something about them that is really captures the imagination. And, you know, I think you made a really important point too, that for the most part, we try not to touch wildlife, right? And most wildlife won't let us touch them, even if we wanted to. You know, a mammal or a bird, they will either run or fly away if you approach them. And so amphibians are, are kind of special in that we can approach them. We, and even though I don't generally go recommend, you know, going out and handling a lot of wildlife, in this case, it's necessary for helping them. And so as long as you're doing it with your hands are clean, you don't have any toxins. This day and age, the big thing that we're worried about is hand sanitizer. You should not have hand sanitizer on your hands if you are handling amphibians without gloves on. But to be able to hold a wild animal in your hand for a brief moment, and to know that it's your helping is quite powerful, um, when, especially when you think about all the news we hear all the time about how humans are harming wildlife and all the, the things that we're doing that are making life difficult for wild animals. And to be able to interact with them in a helping way, which is something that you encounter in your work with wildlife rehabilitation, but many people don't have that experience. And so it's really quite powerful, even if it lasts 10 seconds. Okay, so now let's say we've got someone listening who would like to get involved. Can you tell them who to contact? 
Yeah. So depends on where you live. We welcome people to attend. We have a Zoom training each spring. We also have self-guided training videos on our website at harriscenter.org. And if you live in Southwest New Hampshire, we would love for you to either watch our training videos or join us for the Zoom and sign up and join our brigades. If you live further afield, we also have a list on our website of all the organizations and individuals that we know of who coordinate crossing efforts in other places. People find their way to us every year and they're looking to connect with people closer to home. So I know of efforts like this in Maine, in multiple places in Vermont, in New York State, in New Jersey, in Philadelphia. There's a toad patrol. So we've got a list of all of those at harriscenter.org on our Salamander Crossing Brigades pages. And at the same time, if you if there isn't one near you, you are welcome to kind of self-train using our materials or to join us for our Zoom. And then we do talk about in our Zoom how to find crossings near you and give you the information that you need to kind of go out with your own neighbors or friends or family and do this wherever you are, at least within the Northeast. So harriscenter.org. And then if you want to get really specific about it, harriscenter.org slash salamander dash crossing dash brigades will get you to a whole wealth of information, training dates, amphibian ID sheets, our salamander forecast in, in season, and that list of the programs that we know about. And if there's someone listening out here who has started their own program or even just wants to do this in their neighborhood and doesn't mind me sharing their contact information with other interested folks, I'd be happy to add to that list. My vision is that there are efforts like this happening in all regions of the Northeast. And so whatever we can do to help support that, we're happy to do. I'd really like to thank Brett Thielen for joining us today. You can get more information on Big Nights and how to help salamanders by going to harriscenter.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.